0: Please listen carefully.
1: Welcome to The Week That Was at Global Voices, the podcast where we introduce you to people, places, and events from around the world that aren't getting the media coverage they deserve. I'm your co-host, Sahar, Managing Editor at Global Voices. I live right outside of San Francisco.
2: And I'm your co-host, Lauren, News Editor at Global Voices. I live in Bilbao, Spain. Global Voices is an international network of passionate, plugged-in people. Together, we've been telling stories about our
1: communities through our digital reporting since 2005. The Week That Was podcast takes a look at some of the stories that have recently come out of our newsroom. This week, we'll take you to India, China, and Nepal. We'll also speak with Global Voices contributor Angel Carion about Puerto Rican opposition to a U.S. fiscal control board. And we'll chat with Global Voices author Tansen about an outpouring of support for an official in Myanmar who dared to speak out against a radical Buddhist nationalist group. Here's a sneak peek.
3: Right now the government is doing the right job. Although they might be slow or they might be ineffective. at least it's a right job. And it seems like we're heading on the right direction.
2: But first, to Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory and has been for more than 100 years. During that time, it's remained in a sort of limbo of limited rights. Puerto Ricans have U.S. citizenship, but aren't allowed to vote in federal elections for the country's president. Puerto Ricans also lack a vote in the U.S. Congress, where laws that
1: very much affect them are decided. And the situation just got worse. On June 30th, U.S. President Barack Obama signed off on a law that imposes a fiscal control board over the government of Puerto Rico. The board has extraordinary emergency powers meant to help manage Puerto Rico's more than $70 billion of debt. But Puerto Ricans have no say in the matter. Many think the board reeks of colonialism. Global Voices contributor, Anhel Carrión is here to tell us more.
0: Hi, Sahar. Hi, Lauren. Great to be here.
1: Anhel, could you tell us more about this board? What powers does it exactly have?
0: The Fiscal Control Board appro- approved by Congress is unlike other boards, similar boards that have been approved uh, for other cities in the U.S., like Detroit and Washington, D.C., for example. Um, those boards are fiscal oversight boards and it's worth noting that in English it, uh, the name of our control board it is a fiscal oversight board but in Spanish they're calling it a fiscal control board because unlike uh, previous boards uh, this one actually has the power to go above uh, every single elected official including the governor and not only that it can pretty much uh, enact whatever dispositions it, it deems necessary even if they go against Puerto Rico's Constitution. So that's the main uh, difference with, with other control boards. This board would have uh, the power to control uh, the government's revenues, budget and operations. It has the power to fire or to uh, uh, pretty much decide uh, who gets to work in the government or uh, in, and when or where for that matter, um, it's uh, it's pretty much a, a, a board that's been given a carte blanche in terms of, of uh, the room they have to operate. It's safe to say that it's unlike anything that uh, we've ever seen before.
2: And how did this situation come to be that Puerto Rico is in so much debt and this board was considered by some to be the solution?
0: Well, a big part of the problem is um, overspending uh, by the government. Um, uh, The government has, uh, over the years, uh, borrowed a lot of money uh, and they haven't always been able to identify uh, from what revenues that money can be repaid. But that's only one part of the problem. Uh, To me, the major cause of, of Puerto Rico's debt is a uh, direct result of U.S. economic policy towards Puerto Rico. Uh, since 1947, Puerto Rico has been uh, pretty much dependent on, on the U.S. economy. Puerto Rico has to import all, over 90% of what it consumes, uh, especially food. Puerto Rico doesn't really produce all that much uh, of the food that, that it consumes. And not only that, it has to import it using the U.S. merchant marine because it is illegal for Puerto Rico to use other ships. The U.S. merchant marine is the most expensive one in the entire world, which accounts for uh, the price of goods being uh, higher here than in other parts of the U.S.
1: What has been the conversation on the ground? What are people saying on Twitter? What are they talking about on dinner tables?
0: The population, I think, is pretty much split more or less evenly in half. Uh, uh in terms of whether they're they're for or against the control board uh people who are in favor of it um have the perception that the board is somehow going to fix things in Puerto Rico it's it's going to put an end to um government overborrowing uh to corruption um, and when you read the law that was a, uh, approved that's not really the case. The board has nothing at all to do with putting it into corruption. it's basically uh, a group of people who are going to make sure that bondholders uh, get paid back the money they're owed. It's not here really to to develop Puerto Rico. Uh, there is some language in, in the uh, Promissa Act uh, which is the name of, of, of the law that was uh, that was passed that creates a control board uh, that talks about economic development of Puerto Rico, but that only says that they will be committed to studying alternatives uh, to, to further develop Puerto Rico's uh, economy. But that's not the same as saying that, that yes, we are going to do something about it. So it's, it's very vague language. Uh, people who are against uh, the imposition of the control board um, are arguing that Uh, Number one, it is a colonial imposition. Its emergency powers, as I said before, go above any elected official in Puerto Rico. It goes above the the Puerto Rico constitution. You know, people are going to be deciding things about Puerto Rico that have nothing to do with the islands. Puerto Ricans had no say in who these people are. It's a very uh, strange uh, and rather unnerving situation for, for a lot of people here.
2: Zooming out a little bit, are most people in Puerto Rico in favor of changing the political status of the islands? What is the you know, breakdown between support for statehood, for example, and independence, and has this board affected those sentiments at all?
0: Well, I think one of the major uh, changes that I've noticed in, in the uh, conversation that's going on uh, in social media, for example is that more and more people are talking about independence increasingly as an option I mean it's always been on the table but nobody has or, or very few people have, have taken it seriously uh, in the past uh, couple of decades let would say um, but uh, it's increasingly becoming uh, uh, something that's talked about more uh, still it, it, by uh not a huge part of the population but it's it, it is increasing um, also uh, people who support statehood for Puerto Rico are I think uh, urging uh, their their leaders to be a bit more proactive in terms of um, uh, uh, demanding that that the u.s uh, 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 do something about, about Puerto Rico's status and that it um, it approves eventually status for Puerto Rico. What I think is uh, safe to say at this point is that most people reject the status as it is right now in Puerto Rico. Uh, I think uh, if there were any doubts uh, in the matter, uh, this law has pretty much proved that Puerto Rico is in the colonial relationship with the U.S. and that um, something does n- need to be done about it uh, and uh, I think that uh, in terms of, of, um, of any kind of maybe consensus among the population that's pretty much uh, what I think is safe to say that is going on right now. Uh, yeah, there's been uh, active resistance to uh, the imposition of the board. There there has been a civil disobedience camp uh, that's been organized in front of the U.S. federal court building in the capital of San Juan. And uh, the numbers have grown. It's still a small group, but the numbers have grown. So I think that that's a group that's probably, that has to be watched in the coming weeks and months as as this whole thing plays out. Uh, because I think that that's going to be the main focus of whatever challenges are thrown at, at, at the board and the U.S. government. So there has been resistance. There's going to be more resistance, I think, in the future. It's, uh, it's an interesting historical moment, I think, in Puerto Rico. Not unlike... For example, the, the uh, decade of the 1930s and the 1970s when the economy was also in, uh, in crisis, there was also political persecution of people who held uh, independence ideals. So I think it's something to watch for, the parallels between what's happening today in Puerto Rico and what's happened previously during the 20th century.
2: Well, you're reporting on this, Whole topic has been excellent, Angel. Thank you for keeping up on it.
0: Thank you. And I'm very honored again uh, to be here. And it's been a wonderful experience writing these stories, and uh, hopefully, I'll be able to write some more in the future.
2: Want to read more about the stories we mentioned in this podcast? You'll find them and more on our website, globalvoices.org, on Twitter, at globalvoices and on facebook.com slash Online.
1: Internet has been banned. Curfew has been imposed. Phones can't be reached. The mighty Indian state might have killed him, but they haven't won. A 21-year-old in his death has shaken you. Two days after protests erupted in Indian-administered Kashmir, this message was posted on Facebook by Kashmiri journalist and former New York Times writer Basharath Peer. The 21-year-old who Peer is talking about is Burhan Vani, a commander of Kashmiri separatist group Hizbul Mujahideen. Most news outlets have reported that he was 22 years old. In his short life, Vani had come to be known as the poster boy of Kashmir's new wave of armed militants fighting for freedom from India. Wani used social media platforms to rally supporters for an Azad, or free, Kashmir. Unlike other rebel leaders, Wani did not cover his face in his viral videos. He did not use an alias in his Facebook videos. Wani's identity was well known.
2: Wani was killed extrajudicially on July 8th by Indian military forces. There had been a bounty of 1 million Indian rupees on his head. The story of what happened next is brought to us by Global Voices authors Kisholai Mukherjee and Vishal Manve. Wani's killing is viewed by many Kashmir citizens as an attempt by the Indian government to silence the resistance movement. Tens of thousands of young Kashmiris turned out for his funeral on July 9th, defying a curfew. They shouted slogans of Asadi, meaning freedom, and India, go back. Massed men held Pakistani flags during Bwani's funeral prayers, which were held in multiple areas in the region. The protests continued across Kashmir. Then Indian forces armed with bullet and pellet guns opened fire on thousands of demonstrators. A total of 31 people were killed and more than 400 injured. A local hospital says it is treating more than 90 young people for pellet eye injuries. Most of them are at risk of permanent blindness. There were also reports that security forces tear gassed a hospital, even as patients and doctors were inside, leading
1: to deaths. This is the disputed region's worst outbreak of civilian unrest since 2010. That year, more than 100 people died in anti-India protests, which were triggered after police shot a teenager. Muslim-majority Kashmir is geographically divided between India and Pakistan and claimed in its entirety by both countries. 12 million live in the Indian portion of Kashmir. Separatist politicians, rebel groups, and alliances like the all Parties Hurriyat Conference reject India's rule over Kashmir and have been fighting for independence or a merger with Pakistan since 1989. More than 60,000 people have been killed in sporadic uprisings and subsequent Indian military crackdowns since then. If you'd like to learn more about the Kashmir conflict or the struggle for independence, I suggest reading the haunting and beautifully crafted memoir by Basharat Peer, Curfewed Night. If that name, Basharat Peer, sounds familiar, it's because we started this story with his Facebook comment. Also you can watch Jashna Azadi, How We Celebrate Freedom a brave documentary made by Indian filmmaker Sanjay Gok. It is available on YouTube. That's Jashne Azadi, How We Celebrate Freedom. What do you think of this podcast? Be sure to find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Subscribe, give us an upvote, or drop us a comment. And if we don't appear on your favorite podcast app, let us know.
2: If you're a high-profile politician, it's not uncommon for things to be named after you. Streets, parks, libraries, even new species. For example, a kind of trapdoor spider bears the name of US President Barack Obama, and a type of sea slug called Mandelia mirocornata incorporates the last name of former South African President Nelson Mandela. It seems, however, that not all state leaders appreciate the gesture. A Chinese scientist recently named a new beetle species after China's President Xi Jinping to thank him for, quote, making our motherland stronger and stronger. But the new beetle has been targeted for censorship on Chinese social media. Global Voices Northeast Asia editor Oiwan Lam brought us this story.
1: If you try to search for the name of the beetle, Rhizodiestes Zodi Estes Timona Zi, on the popular Chinese microblogging site Sina Weibo, you'll get a notice that reads, according to related law and policy, the search results cannot be shown. The name is banned on the site. So why do authorities consider the beetle's name ban-worthy? It probably has to do with the negative connotations that the word bug has in Chinese culture. Also, the scientific description of this beetle says it resides underneath rotten trees and eats rotten things, imagery which is associated with corruption in Chinese literature. The ban on the term quickly became a running joke online. While carefully avoiding the mention of President Z, one Weibo user commented, The check on sensitive terms is so advanced, should we say that XXX is not happy about the bug being named after him? An act of ass kissing now turns into ass kicking.
2: It's been an especially harsh couple of weeks for social media in China. On July 3rd, the country's top internet authorities banned news outlets from using social media messages as sources in their reporting. They argued that social media was behind a number of fabricated stories over the years. Sure, it is certainly true that there have been cases in which journalists failed to verify information taken from social media. But social media has also led to incredibly important stories and discussions in China. One recent example is Wei Zexi, a 21-year-old who died in April of synovial sarcoma. Before his death, his family spent thousands on a phony treatment that exacerbated his condition. They had found the so-called treatment on the search engine Baidu. But, even though it looked like a search result, it was actually an advertisement. The case caused public outrage, and China's authorities finally stepped in, tightening the regulations on search engine advertising. Wei Zhexi's story came to light in large part because of social media.
1: In some parts of the world, there's nothing particularly exciting about cargo trucks. They're usually one solid color they might bear the logo of the company. If the driver is feeling generous, you might get a friendly wave or a honk of the horn. That's about it. But in other parts of the world, trucks are more than that. They're art and wisdom. In Nepal, trucks often have quirky, witty, or satirical verses painted onto them. Global Voices contributor Sanjib Chaudhary tells us all about it. The
2: messages can be about politics, philosophy, love and humor. And these days they aren't limited to trucks. They also show up on public buses and battery-powered tuk-tuk called Safa Tempos. So why do people write first on their vehicles? Well, in 2012, a blogger asked a driver named Govinda Lamsel that very question. Lamsel said this truck literature is an important creative outlet for drivers whose work is very mechanical. People perceive us as hardened folk without emotions, he said. Well, we have feelings too. And this is usually our only means of showing
1: them while on the road. Social media is full of examples of these verses, which are written in the Nepali language. Here are a few taken from Twitter and translated into English. If you can't have Facebook, go for Twitter. If you can't win a girl, make her your sister. Or, in America, young lead the country, all get the pension. In Nepal, all rule the country, young get the tension. And don't lose your cool in sorrow, don't cross your limits in happiness. Spend money for honor, don't spend honor for money. And finally this one: a baby's food, biscuit, and cake, a driver's life, steering and brake.
2: Finally, let's turn to Myanmar. Hyomin Tay, the Chief Minister of Yangon City, made a daring statement recently. He declared that the radical Buddhist nationalist group Mabata is, quote, no longer needed since a government committee is already overseeing the country's Buddhist affairs. Mabata is a civil religious group that aims to protect Buddhism, Buddhists, and Myanmar from the so-called danger of Muslim expansion. Myanmar has a Buddhist majority population, although it has more than 100 ethnic minority groups.
1: The group is notorious for its anti-Muslim statements and activities. In particular, it has been a strong force behind the attacks against the Rohingya people, a persecuted Muslim ethnic group living in the western part of Myanmar. Mabata's leader has threatened to hold a nationwide protest if the government doesn't take action against Pyo Min but internet users have launched a campaign in support of the minister. We head over to the United Kingdom, where our Global Voices contributor, Tan Sin, is there to tell us more. He's been in London the last year studying Media and Development at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. He grew up in Myanmar. Welcome, Tan.
3: Hello from London.
1: Tan, what's the deal with this group, Mabata? How much influence do they really have in politics?
3: This group? Mababa, they were formed in 2014, but the people behind this group, they have been active since as early as 2011, and they have like pretty big influence, and they have a leader called Wiratu, and he's pretty active and pretty um, vocal about his views against the Muslims. In terms of politics, Inside the country, people will say they're supported by the military backed party. So they're also using their own ideology to support the military backed party. The military backed party, in turn, support them secretly behind. They started lobbying a law called Race and Religion Protection Bill. They had a successful campaign to pass this law in 2015, so it was passed. Well, this law restricts interfaith marriages. Uh, religious conversion and also calls for monogamy and population control they got this concept for this law because it derived from the narrative of the muslim um, expansionism in the country so they have been pretty active in spreading their anti-muslim rhetoric in the country saying the muslims are terrorists they are taking up buddhist women They're taking up Buddhist economy, and then they're threatening the national sovereignty. All these kind of ideas that they've been spreading all of these years during the time of the previous government. They are also very strong against their views against the Rohingyas. They have had numerous protests in the past trying to pressure government to do anything that would protect the right of the Rohingya people. They have pushed the government from t- doing any action that would help Rohingya people. So that's one, one part of their influence. The other influence is that they, they have been pretty active in politics during election campaign period. They have been strongly supporting the military back party, which is the party of the um, President Dengsi, the ex-president. The supporters of Mabada they will very aggressive against attacking the opposition party led by Aung San Suu Kyi. So they have been framing, using the anti-Muslim narrative to Aung San Suu Kyi as a traitor of the nation and trying not to vote her.
2: Who is this chief minister who, who made this daring statement, Fiomintang? Is it surprising that he would say something like this?
3: He came with, with the government formed by NLT which won last year so Aung San Suu Kyi party she won with landslide victory during the last year election so this at the beginning of this year they formed a new government and they appointed Piu as the new chief minister of Myanmar's largest city yeah. he, he said it during his visit to Singapore that we we no longer need Mabada because we already have a state official religious body, which is called State Sangha Mahanayaka Committee. It's it's not surprising that he said that because NLD the government and th- himself, they were quite fast with their reforms. So people were expecting, like sooner or later, they would do something about the group. So after he said that, the state official religious body itself also made another statement that they will no longer support Mabada and then after that the uh, Minister of Culture and Religious Affairs also said that Mabada and, and its leader Wiradu needs to be taken to legal process so it seems like a coordinated effort between different government departments.
1: What has been the effect on the ground, beyond politicians? What kind of support are we seeing for dealing with this group online and offline? What are people saying?
3: After he made that statement, blah, blah, blah they had a really urgent meeting with its own groups, and they, they threatened the government that they would do a nationwide protest if they don't take action against the um, minister. But a few days later, they dropped their claimed and then they said they would no longer do the protest and after that other politicians and other leaders came in and do their criticism against Mabada. Um, in terms of people reaction, I mean online it has been very strong. So there are two sides. The hate speech of the Mabada group has risen, saying attacking Pyominde and um, attacking anyone who says um, Mahabata should, should be disbanded especially the Facebook page of We Do their hate speech has been very active trying to push back the claims and but fortunately they're also on the sides of the government people are really supporting his decisions so a lot of people they are supporting that there, there shouldn't be Mahabata and now is the time to take action against Wiradu. And I think two days ago somebody from a civil society organization called Tatoza, huh? they filed a lawsuit against the, the Wiradu, the leader. So it seems like he's going to fail, he, he's going to face legal action very soon.
2: You said that Mabaga engages a lot in anti anti-Muslim rhetoric but anti isn't necessarily exclusive to that group. Can you tell us about efforts to combat it in general in Myanmar? For example, you've previously reported on the No Hate Speech Project.
3: Civil societies are the main body trying to push back this light surge of hate speech, but they are in no way as strong as the forces of Mabada because first, they can't do any offline Mabada is the only strong force that during the previous government term were able to have an offline um, movement. So these counter forces, like in 2013 they had the flower speech project by a civil society organization. On Facebook they make stickers to combat hate speech. A few groups that launch campaigns like My Friend Campaign. Which use uh, selfie photos to show the religious tolerance and interfaith friendship. A few, um, a few organizations, they did try to educate people about the danger of hate speech, like No Hate Speech Project. And such, I would say these movements are not strong because they're on their own. Also, they don't do any kind of offline mobilization. The Mavada, they use narrative, which is very strong to try to construct a new image of the Muslims as the threat to the community.
1: Tan, on a more personal note, you're currently in London, which is still reeling from um, Brexit, the vote to leave the EU. The campaign was run on a largely um, anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant sentiment. What is it like hearing that sloganeering coming from Myanmar?
3: All the Brexit campaigns, they might use um, narrative as their political campaigns, but I mean, that's part of their referendum um, campaign. But in Myanmar, it's spread. It's not by a political organizations. So Mabada is non political, even though they advocate for political parties. And their language is even worse it's full of hate speech. We're far worse. <laughs> it's like pretty much everywhere, you know, a lot of countries are facing this problem with the rise of intolerance, very serious, (laughs) and I'm really glad that the government is finally taking action.
2: Are you optimistic after this Chief Minister has spoken out against Mabata?
3: I'm pretty much optimistic, very much, because done by the government, in Myanmar, the government has always been the most powerful part of the society. And previously, these hate speeches were so rampant and so serious because the government didn't do anything. It seems like the government was actually in part of it. Now it's like, even though we might not see, um, we might not see any immediate results, it might take longer, you know, until the, all the minorities' rights have been recognized. It's still a long way to go, but right now the government is doing the right job. Although they might be slow or they might be inf- effective, at least it's a right job. And it seems like we're heading on a right direction. So I, yeah, I'm pretty much optimistic, but realistically it's going to take a long, long time.
2: Okay, well hopefully we see some positive change then. <laughs> slowly but
3: surely
2: yes yes thank you so much for joining us today and that's it for this episode this is sahar and lauren this episode would not have been possible without the wonderful work of global voices authors translators and editors
1: so a big big thank you to all of you out there in this episode, we featured Creative Commons licensed music from the Free Music Archive, including Please Listen Carefully by Jazzer, The Universal Fluff Theory by Krakatoa, Anamorphic Orchestra by Alan Singley, Origami 1726 by The Blue Dot Sessions, Driving Me Backwards by Phil Rivas, and Car Crash Lander Instrumentals by Corey Gray. Thanks for tuning in to The Week That Was at Global Voices. You'll hear our voices again in two weeks.